seated, and it's good to have you with us today, actually here at the Antioch campus and also at the Ridgeview campus. The Ridgeview campus is joining us this morning via video. We do this periodically, don't do it all the time, but we do it to give us a kind of a common experience together. And um, uh, once, um, uh, several years ago, we started a message series by bringing us all together. It happened to be on the first Sunday of a new year, so today... We are starting a new message series. Today, it's not only the first Sunday of a new year, it's the first Sunday of a new decade. And so, we are all together uh, this morning, um, virtually anyway. And I do want to welcome you to 2020. Part of the reason I know it's 2020 is because that new Bible smell permeates uh, the room and Here in just a moment when we open our Bibles, all those gilded pages will still be stuck together and you'll be breaking your Bible in. There's nothing quite like it. Um, I know that many of you um, are are probably resolution keepers, resolution, let me rephrase that, you're resolution makers. It remains to be seen whether you're resolution keepers, but some of you may actually be at Blue Valley today because you've made a commitment in this new year to improve yourself spiritually, to be more engaged in your faith in Jesus than what you have been in the past. And I applaud that, and I am glad you're here. But I want to give you a resolution that I am making, and I'm going to project on everybody on both campuses this morning. You ready for it? Here it is. My resolution is to tell you each and every Sunday before I preach to put your phones away. Okay? Those things can be a distraction. Now you say, but my Bible is on my phone. Well, my notes are on my iPad. But you know what I do? I, I put it on airplane mode. Part of the reason I have to put my iPad on airplane mode is that you all would text me while I preached. That was distracting. Seriously, it would show up. Do you really think that, Derek? Well, I'm busy, you know? So, uh, so I've got mine on airplane mode. If you need to have your, your phone with you to keep notes or to read your Bible, that's fine. Put it on airplane mode. The rest of us, let's just put it away and let's practice something. Let's practice all being present and attentive as we dive into God's word this morning. It is 2020. 2020. And I have a few questions. Where is my Jetsons car? I mean, when I was a little boy, I was all but assured that I would not be driving on dumb old roads in 2020. I'd be flying my little flying saucer around. Where's my Jetsons car? I hunt. Where is my laser gun? I don't have a laser gun. I wish I did. You cook and kill all at once. It would be fantastic. (laughs) I don't have a laser gun. I I want one of those things like they had on Star Trek where you could just kind of walk up to a a shelves and say coffee black or steak medium and it appear. I want one of those deals. I want to know where my transporter is that would allow me to dematerialize in Kansas in January and show up in Tahiti in January. That would be a a lot better deal. There are so many things that I do not have, and it bothers me. But here's something that I don't have that bothers me the most. I don't have, you don't have, we don't have a common understanding of the term Christian. We no longer have any real, accepted, universally agreed to understanding of what Christian means. The word has lost absolutely all of its meaning. If you don't agree with me, 
I would just remind you that every cult practically that you can think of that you know about claims to be a Christian. You're not a member of a cult, are you? I hope, I hope none of us here are white nationalists, but white nationalists claim the term Christian. In fact, the KKK was established as a Christian organization, and yet we would not ascribe Christianity to, to those groups of people. The term is not used very much in Scripture. It's only used three times. But Christians were so small in number and so culturally insignificant that the term itself carried weight and carried meaning. Everyone knew when you used the term Christian what you were saying. You were saying that that person, those groups of people, model their beliefs, their behavior, their thinking, and their speech after the person Jesus whom they are following. And in the world in which we live, the reason that Christianity is so ill-defined is because by and large the term has been completely disconnected from Jesus. So as we go into a year, 2020, that causes us to think of focus, perhaps the best thing we can do as we enter into what will be without a doubt a tumultuous decade is for the people who claim the name of Christ to focus their attention on Jesus, to understanding that all of our identity flows from Him and no longer project what we want Jesus to be on him. We want to focus on Jesus this morning. And we are going to do that in this brand new series of messages that will take us through mid-year from the letters of John. If you would please go to the end of your New Testament, almost, and find the book of 1 John. We will be looking over the next several months at the book of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John together, seeing what they tell us about a focus, a laser-like focus on, on the true and real Jesus. I hope you have found 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That's where we'll begin. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? Hear the Word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. May God add a blessing to the reading of his words and you may be seated. And let's just be very honest with one another as we get started this morning. At least from our understanding of English grammar, those four verses I just read were a jumbled, jacked up mess. Weren't they? They're hard to understand. I mean, it's pretty sounding, right? They sound, it's pretty words. But what do they mean? It's really, really hard for us to understand that as they are brought to us, particularly by translations like the one from which I preach, the ESV. 
The English Standard Version does a very good job of giving us these words literally. In other words, the basic understanding, uh, definition of the words, and in the order in which they appear. But because they are so literal, it is difficult for us to understand their meaning because Greek grammar, the language in which this was written, works differently than English grammar. For instance, there is a generally accepted rhythm to the English language. Subject, verb, and either predicate or object. Subject, verb, predicate, or object. So you can understand how a sentence works by going that way. But in the, in the Greek language, it was okay sometimes to put the subject and verb towards the end of a very long sentence. They would have understood it perfectly, but it's hard getting to us in English. And that is what has happened, and the reason that 1 John 1, 1 through 4 is difficult to understand, at least on first blush. The subject and the verb that controls the long sentence that goes all the way through, really, uh, verse 3, is in verse 3 itself towards the end of the sentence. Here's the subject and the verb of the sentence that is created in the first three verses. It is the words in verse 3, we proclaim. The subject of this long sentence is we, the verb is proclaimed. So now let's go back and maybe we can start to get oriented properly to this, uh, this passage. Here's how it reads better to us in English. We proclaim that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Does that make a little better sense? It does. It, it helps us understand, okay, now we know what we're doing. But we still don't know what we're saying. We know what we're doing, but we don't know what we're saying. And so we need to look at a few more of these words and phrases in verse 1. See that phrase, from the beginning? That is used by John 100% of the time to trigger the mind of the reader to go back to eternity and the eternal God. How does the Old Testament start? It starts with the words, in the beginning. John uses that same phrase to open up his book called John, which is a reflection of the life of Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when he uses it here, he's meaning for our minds to go back to the eternal God. So he is saying essentially, paraphrasing it here, we proclaim to you that which we heard, which we have heard from God. Now, if we just stopped it right there, it could have been like, you know, out cutting your grass, out, um, you know, sitting by the pool and, and hearing a voice come down from heaven. But there's more to his sentence. He says, we are proclaiming to you a message that we have heard from God, but more than have just heard, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of God. Life. So now we know that the, the message has been personified in some way, or at least objectified in some way. That it was not just a message that we heard, but it was a message that we could, that we could touch and that we could see. And now, because we're Christians and we're reading Christian scripture, we, we start to get what he's saying. He's saying to the people as he opens up this book, I am an eyewitness to Jesus. I was there with him. I, I, I heard him and the message that he had from God, and, and I was able uh, to see him with my eyes. I was able to touch him. I'm an eyewitness to Jesus, and I am proclaiming to you 
his word of life. And then verse 2 is a parenthetical statement. And in the English Standard Version, there are two lines that set it apart. That, that means verse 2 is going to explain something about verse 1. And what it's going to explain about verse 1 is that phrase, word of life. Look at it again. The life was made manifest, and, we, and he kind of recapitulates things. We have seen it. We have testified to it, proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So we heard this word of life, and what is the word of life that was given to us? It was the message of Jesus concerning eternal life. So here's what John is saying so far. I'm an eyewitness to Jesus. I heard his message. I have seen Jesus. I have touched Jesus and I am relaying to you the message that he gave us concerning eternal life. And then he goes back in verse 3 and begins to carry on with the sentence. He says, I'm proclaiming that which we have heard. We also proclaim to you. And then if you want the thesis statement, um, the purpose statement of the entire book, it, it comes after the words, so that... I'm an eyewitness to Jesus. I've heard his message. You can trust me that what I'm about to relay to you is true. And the reason I'm writing to you is so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Now, why is, why is he having to do this? Aren't these people Christians? Well, here's what was going on. And this becomes more and more evident. As, as we go through these letters, there were people who were beginning to say, I can accept the idea of connecting with God, and I can accept some of, of what you are saying Jesus said, but I'm going to follow, follow God apart from Jesus. I'm going, to, I'm going to have a religious life that adopts many of the things that you have told me that I like, but I'm going to disconnect it from Jesus. In fact, in the world in which he lived, uh, there were people just a few decades after the life of Christ who were beginning to say, well, I don't even know if Jesus really existed. I mean, not in the sense that you and I would understand existence anyway. So in essence, what, what the people to whom he was writing were being tempted to do was to adopt, listen to me very closely, to adopt a Christless Christianity. And here in Johnson County, Kansas, in 2020, we go, those silly people. Those silly people. We would never, ever adopt a Christless Christianity. But if you will remember, when I began today, I said that the term Christian has lost all connection to Christ and as such, we are living in a church world that is running headlong into trying to live out a Christless Christianity. And that is true regardless of which side of the political divide that you find yourself to be on, or the cultural divide that you find yourself to be on, or on the social uh, side of the divide that you find yourself to be on. Here's what's going on. The far right in the world in which we live has adopted a Christless message. And the uh, far left has adopted a messageless Christ. Listen to what I said. Far right has adopted a Christless message. Far left 
has adopted a messageless Christ. Here's what I mean. The right, by and large, tends to get the message right. Repent. You're a sinner. And you repent. And they tend to, to, to get the morality light, uh, right, at least the parts of the morality that they can't rationalize in their own lives. And then we just scoot that stuff aside. But, but their lives and their actions, their, their, their behavior, their thinking, and their speech bear no resemblance to Jesus whatsoever. Far left on the other side likes Jesus, at least the parts of the compassion that he spoke about. Let's kind of scoot aside maybe some of the morality stuff, but let, uh, we like the compassion part. And so they're saying we're Christians, but they've abandoned the message of Jesus, which was repent and surrender your life fully and completely to follow me. We live in a, in a, in a church world that can even find its way into a place like Blue Valley that is trying to live out a Christless Christianity on the right, uh, a Christless message, and on the left, a messageless Christ. So regardless of where you find yourself, as far as that divide goes, we have to step back and we have to understand that we cannot anymore, especially in what I really do believe will be the most tumultuous decade that any of us have ever seen. We cannot anymore try to do this without Jesus. And, and we're shown why this is such in two ways this morning. First, this passage of Scripture shows us that Jesus is the substance of our faith. The substance of our faith. Here's what I mean. If you're asked to define the message of Christianity, you may be tempted to say it's love. If you're asked to define the, the message of Christianity, you may be tempted to say repent. But the message of Christianity is Jesus. Jesus is both the message and the messenger. You cannot disconnect the teaching of Jesus and the morality of Jesus from Jesus himself. What Christianity is ultimately all about is one person, Jesus. Jesus is both message and messenger. And that's manifesting itself at a church like Blue Valley in ways that you're experiencing right now. One of our values, one of our 12 values that we've adopted as a church is the value of expository preaching. If you're not familiar with that term, expository preaching is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, preaching through Bible books or through long, long sections of, of Bible books. Here's why we do that. We do that because the essential message of Scripture is Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about Jesus. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus said. The, the day of his resurrection, he's walking on a road to a place called Emmaus with two unnamed disciples who have not figured out that they are walking with Jesus. And they're, they're lamenting everything that has taken place over the last few days in Jerusalem and the death 
of the Savior. And now the rumor that he has, has risen and they just don't know what to think of it. And Jesus, shielding his identity from them, we are told by Luke, takes the Old Testament, the only Bible that existed for them at the time, and went section by section showing them himself from the scriptures. The Bible is about Jesus. And so we do not want you to come here to hear a a series of messages on marriage because that could be disconnected from Jesus. We don't want you to come here and hear a series of messages on finances because that could be disconnected from Jesus. What we want to do is we want to read Scripture. And then as Jesus speaks to us from Scripture about marriage, we speak to it. And as he speaks to us from Scripture about finances, we speak to it. But we start with Scripture because Scripture starts and ends with Jesus. The substance of our faith is Jesus. But Jesus is also the substance of our fellowship. The substance of the fellowship that we have together. John says, I am writing to you to, as an eyewitness of Jesus to remind you of the person and message of Jesus which cannot be separated from one another so that we can continue to have fellowship with one another. He's saying, I can't call you a Christian if we do not have a common understanding of who Jesus is and the essential nature of his message. If we do not have a common understanding of that, we cannot just agree to disagree about those things. Now, in the world in which we live, in churches like ours, the real danger is not that we will have at Blue Valley Baptist Church a disagreement about the person of Jesus or the essential message of Jesus. The thing that will threaten to fracture our fellowship is the idea of Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something. It is, as I've said already, 2020, which means that the presidential election cycle that I have dreaded as your pastor for four years is upon us. And I have already steeled my back to know that I'm going to have to, at times, play referee. And our pastors and our elders are going to have to play referee for people who forget that what essentially binds them together is Jesus and not who they're going to vote for. Because, see, here's what is going to happen. There will be those who will, given the promises of conservative judicial appointments and the stakes on abortion and a whole host of issues, who will, in this church, break fellowship with anyone who does not vote for the president's re-election. And then there will be those who look at the, the lack of character the president displays who will break fellowship with anyone who votes for him. Jesus plus. Jesus plus. It can be Jesus plus politics. It can be Jesus plus to moral stance. We don't divide in places like our church over Jesus. We divide over tribes underneath the banner of Jesus. But if the substance of our faith is Jesus, then the substance of our fellowship with one another is Jesus. And we need to keep all of that in mind as we attempt to be, as Christians, salt and light in the year to come. So the substance of our faith, substance of our fellowship is Jesus. And you're saying, well, that's really good information. But I'm not about just giving you information. I think when God gives us his word, There are things 
that we need to do in response to it. We are not here to simply be educated. So let me ask as we close two kind of diagnostic questions. And then I want you to think about your answers. And then we will use all of that uh, to kind of frame a path forward for us. So here's my first question. What is a disciple? Now, I've chosen that word rather than Christian because uh, the word disciple shows up a lot more in the New Testament. But I mean the same thing, all right? So what is a disciple? Well, there's a real good chance that most of the answers in this room wound up in one of two camps. A disciple is someone who does stuff or a disciple is someone who knows stuff. A disciple is someone who does stuff. A disciple is someone that knows stuff. Here's what I mean by does stuff. A disciple is someone who uh, reads their Bible. And a disciple is someone who goes to church. And a disciple is someone who says grace before their meal. Or a disciple is someone who does not, you know, uh, dance, smoke, or go with girls who do. You know, that kind of thing. A disciple is someone who does stuff. A disciple is someone who knows stuff. A disciple is someone who just knows the Bible in, inside and out, who has really wrestled with the, 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 the deeper theological teachings of Scripture. A disciple is somebody who knows stuff. But that's not the New Testament understanding of a disciple. New Testament understanding of disciples is the same as the New Testament understanding of a Christian. It's someone whose beliefs and whose behavior and whose thinking and whose speech has been shaped by the one they follow. So a disciple is ultimately about someone, a term that identifies someone who is passionately, with everything that is in them, following the person of Jesus so that their life can begin to reflect his life in their life. That's what a disciple is. All right, so now let's ask another question. What is a church? What is a church? And there is a tendency for us to answer that question by saying, well, a church is, is a relationship. And that's, that's right, but then I need to ask you, okay, well, what is that relationship? And, and most of the time, that is defined by our relationship with one another. So we begin to define a church in terms of how we are all related to one another. We have joined a specific place Blue Valley Baptist Church. We attend a specific place called Blue Valley Baptist Church. Here's the problem with that definition. That is not what gives us unity. We've already learned that. What gives us unity is the person of Jesus. That is the basis for our unity. And the danger is if we begin to to think of church strictly in terms of relationship, um, I, I, may, I may, in the interest of preserving the relationship I have with you, not speak truth to you. I may need to challenge you in some way, but I value my relationship with you more than I value your relationship with Christ. Ultimately, ultimately, our relationship that defines us as a church is our, is our, our corporate relationship to Jesus as our Savior. We are disciples who follow Jesus. That is what a church is. You say, okay, well, I get that. So a disciple is someone who, who follows Jesus in such a way that, that their life begins to reflect his life, and a church is, is a group of people who have collectively committed their lives to follow Jesus. Now, what do I do with that? In 2020, 
You need to begin, if you're not already, making a commitment to living your life in such a way, instituting practices in your life that help you engage the life of Jesus on a personal level, to spend time with him on a personal level so that he can begin to reshape your life from the inside out. And I want to give you a a, a kind of practice that um, you'll hear me talk about a lot. I've, I've talked about it to you already, and that's the idea of praying Scripture. And what I would suggest you do is you take the, the Bible that you have and go to a place like Psalms. That's the best place to do it. And as you read a psalm, meditate on it, think on it, and then pray what comes in your mind back to the Lord. Just take the first verse of Psalm 1, for example. Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And I might pray back to the Lord, Lord, I want to be blessed. And I want to be a blessing to others. And I know that in order for me to do that, I, I, can't, I can't let other people tell me what's right and wrong. I've got to let your word guide that. Help me not stand in the counsel of the wicked. Lord, I, 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 can't, I can't see how close I can get to sin and still stay someone who can be blessed. So God, help me live a separate kind of life, not stand in the way of sinners. You get the idea. Doing that, you're taking the words that God has inspired, praying them back to him, and it'll give your life uh, your prayer life, life, which will help you in turn begin to really engage the life of Jesus so that your life becomes more like Jesus' life. Here's the second thing that you need to do in 2020. Mind your tongue. I've got news for you. You're going to spend eternity with people who vote differently than you in November. And it will be very easy for you as we get more and more wrapped up in all of this and we begin to, 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 to let ourselves get completely spun up about this to begin to say, if you're not doing this the way I do it, then you're lost. And if you're not doing it the way I'm doing it, then you're lost. And we'll begin to, to fracture that relationship, forgetting that our unity it's not based on a political choice that will matter that long after eternity starts. But is instead based on the person that we collectively follow, and that is Jesus. Pray scripture, and then mind your tongue and love those, even when they disagree, understanding that while we may need to debate with one another, very real important issues, ultimately what binds us together is not our voter ID but Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.